morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cuts Miles Davis Studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Back in ancient times, and here I'm talking about the spring of 2008, a colleague told me about a new tool called Twitter. I looked it over, checked it out, and it made absolutely no sense. Just a bunch of people with time on their hands sending short, semi-literate updates about what they had for lunch. Not for me, I said. Just try it, this other guy told me. You can't understand it unless you use it. So I tried it, and he was right. Since then, I've sent more than 12,000 tweets, and I'll bet I spend at least 20 minutes a day reading and scanning Twitter for breaking news, big ideas, and new jokes. That's a not inconsiderable portion of my life I'll never get back. And one of the people to blame is Biz Stone. In 2006, he helped invent Twitter. And by doing so, he created not just a new technology or a new tool, but in so many ways, a new language, a new way that human beings around the world connect. It's an extraordinary tale. And now Stone has used the old-fashioned technology of a book to tell his story. The book is Things a Little Bird... Let me try that again, James. His new book is Things a Little Bird Told Me, Confessions of a Creative Mind. It's a really fascinating story, and Biz Stone is here with us to talk about it. Biz, welcome to Office Hours. Oh, thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So this book is, is really an autobiography of sorts. It's, a, it's interesting for a business book because it really does tell your story, and it's a fascinating story. And I actually want to go through it somewhat uh, chronologically because it's so interesting. And I, and I think there's, there are a lot of lessons in your story for um, for young entrepreneurs, for, for people who are thinking about making their way in life in general. But first, let me ask, why a book? Why not just tweet out your story? Well, I've been doing this lecture for over 10 years now. It started, it started at Oxford, and um, it grew and it grew and it grew. And then I started getting invited to speak at uh, a variety of events, um, and I found that everyone from high school kids to CEOs would come up to me afterwards, and they would tell me that some aspect of uh, the lecture um, really inspired them or made them think in a different way about a problem they were working on. And you know, when you do something like this for ten or more years, and you keep getting that kind of feedback, it occurred to me that maybe I should just. Uh, put this into an artifact, something mm. that I can get out to a whole lot more people. Um, some, you know, something, the reason, really kind of the reason why it struck me as being a good book was I gave a commencement address. Uh, and when I was looking out at um, all these students, I was thinking to myself, it's, it's, it's fun to be able to be talking to them now, but it would be really cool if I could just hand them something. You know, to, <laughs> um and th- I think that was when it was. It first struck me the idea of turning it into a book. And I'd written a couple of other books. Right. They were they were they were really sort of nerd books. They yeah. weren't. Um, so it just seemed fun. It just you know it's it's also kind of fun to pretend like you're fancy and uh, and say well my publisher tells me that. Uh, <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah. So that um, loses its that loses its charm in about fifteen sixteen minutes actually. <laughs> well, yeah. Once you have to actually write the book, then you're like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of commencement was it? That was uh, Babson College. Oh, yeah. They gave me an honorary doctor of law, so now I can have you arrested anytime I want. Is that how it works? I did not realize that Babson had... I think that's how it works. I did not realize Babson had that kind of police authority. That is very good to know. But that that actually, (laughs) Babson will take us to to this. So you grew up actually not too far from Babson in in Massachusetts. Um, Mm -hmm. The book talks a little bit about what kind of kid you were. Tell us about that. Because I, I think it's interesting, you know, when you think about something as monumental as Twitter, recognizing that the invention of Twitter was a team effort. There were several people involved, uh, but you were obviously integral to that. You know, like, what kind of kid grows up and helps create Twitter? What kind of kid were you? Uh, I guess I was uh, really imaginative, and I always, I always like to think of myself as an inventor i used to go in, i would invent things even though they weren't really anything my grandfather who i never met 
was a uh, he worked for Bell Telephone, and um, in the home that he left to my mother when when he passed, he left his workshop in the basement, and this was all gears and springs and bells and wires and all sorts of things. And I would just go down there and spend hours. I would tell my mother I was going downstairs to invent things, and the the, the day would just go by. And I would all oh all, all I was really doing was you know attaching things together into some kind of crazy sculpture, but. Uh, <laughs> But I like to pretend that I was inventing things, and um, and and then I and then I sort of fell into becoming an artist. So it was kind of like an artist inventor type. Um, but I, you know, I also just, you know, was like anybody else. I rode my bike around. Yeah. I I, uh, I climbed a lot, a lot of trees. I used to actually. Um, I told my mom when I was a little kid that I was going to go to Babson College and become a businessman. Mm. And and I swear, when I was giving the commencement, you know, they put me in the robe and the whole thing, and they gave me the honorary degree. And when I, I swear, I think my mom thought I was graduating, like really graduating college, like I said I would. Uh, well, uh, that's a great story. That's actually, let me. Um, sorry about that, Biz. I was I was actually looking at my notes here. Um, James, sorry about that. I'm going to jump right back in here. So, um, so you, you, uh, so you got that honorary degree from from Babson, but as you tell the story in this book, things a little bird told me, uh, we learned that you actually were less than a standout student in your high school days. Uh, that you made it to high school, and at some point, though, you decided, I'm not going to do any homework. What's up with that? <laughs> I would argue that I that I was a standout student because uh, <laughs> my my grades were fine. Uh-huh. I just I just decided that I would have a no homework policy. And um, tell us how that the, came about and how you enforced that no homework policy. Well, enforcing it was pretty easy, but yeah. the um, the the way it came about was I after school I would go to. Uh, lacrosse practice and then after lacrosse practice I would go to work and then by the time I got home from work it was like eight or so and then I was supposed to do all this homework and I I pretty much think that the teachers weren't communicating adequately with one another about how much homework they were actually giving each student because when I first got to high school you know the first few weeks in my freshman year I thought I'm gonna do everything that's told of me, and so I did each subject in line, and and I did all the homework that was assigned, and I found that it was taking me till four in the morning, and I realized that it wasn't gonna, that wasn't gonna work. I couldn't do that, then wake up again at seven, and then do school, lacrosse, work, homework, and do it all over again. That just wouldn't work. So something had to go. So I decided, I came up with this idea that I would just, if if I just paid attention. Uh, in class, I didn't have to do the homework because it seemed to me that the homework was really just, um, you know, trying to reinforce what we were already learning. So I went to each teacher, and I think this was the key. Maybe this is what you meant by enforcement. Yeah. Key of if I had just not done my homework, that I probably would have been called into the you know counselor's office and asked if I was you know having a troubled childhood. <laughs> Instead, I w- I went to each student. I mean, I went to each teacher and I said, "Here's the deal." Uh, I think your class is great. I think you're a great teacher. I uh, don't have time for homework, so I'm not going to be doing my homework. However, I will, I promise to pay attention as much as I can in class, and that'll be the trade off. And um, a lot of them laughed at me. Um, some of them said, okay, if you want to do that, you can do that, but your grade is going to suffer. Uh, and then they also laughed at me. But I think the, um, the fact that I said, what I was going to do and then, and then backed it up and didn't do it. It went, it, it meant a lot. And, you know, Mm. it was fun. It was funny to them, but, but, but having, you know, telling them that was the key. And then, you know, the, the best part of it was, was one day, uh, I think it was like, you know, sophomore year or something. One of my friends who was a very good student on the honor roll and all that, uh, stuff, uh, uh, the type of kid who did really well on tests and quizzes, but was very anxious about it. I mean, he would he would sometimes uh, throw up before a test. He was so nervous about things, and he was always stud- doing his homework and studying. And he had his backpack that was, you know, like as if he was going to take a trip to India. And we were uh, we were just finishing up the school day, and I just threw all my books in my locker. I had nothing on my back. I closed just 
slammed the locker door closed, and I said, well, I'll see you tomorrow, Matt. And uh, he was like, what about your books? What about your homework? And I said, oh, I have a no homework policy. And he just looked at me in such an incredulous way. He couldn't, his mouth was agape, and and I just couldn't resist the chance to tease him a little bit because he, he said, you can't do that. You can't have a no homework policy. And I said, Matt, this is America. We can do whatever we want. And I just turned around and left, and I, I, I felt very uh, um, pleased with myself because he was just standing there dumbstruck. But the truth is uh, you can have a no homework policy. Yeah. And as a, ma- as a matter of fact, it, my grades didn't really suffer. And I don't, wanna, I don't want people to think I was just some kid that – that got away with not doing his homework. I, I really did what I said. You know, I I paid attention. I you know I really focused, and I just didn't think I needed it. Yeah, and it's I think what's interesting is that that you know it's it's the it's the child is the father to the man. It's essentially someone seeing an opportunity where others didn't see an opportunity, and. Uh, uh, stating a promise, following through on the promise, and doing it with some degree of integrity and, and rigor. Uh, it's in some ways a kind of a brilliant, you know, I think it encapsulates a lot of what came next, or at least you can see the seeds of what came next. So you rode your no homework policy to college, but that wasn't a great experience for you. No, college wasn't, it turned out college wasn't really for me. I. It's funny that I saw all these different opportunities in high school and I and you know, I have to give credit too to the teachers of my high school for being so open and willing to listen to these these sort of crazy ideas. And um, and so, uh, what's fu- what's looking back, what's funny to me is that um, yeah, I was a good student in high school, and it, there was this overwhelming um, assumption that you you must go to college mm-hmm. after. High school, and it's funny to me that having done all these other things in high school, I didn't challenge that. I just went along with it, and and I went along with it in the worst possible way. I was, it was down to the wire. I hadn't applied to anything. I wasn't interested. I was sitting in the counts, guidance counselor's office because they had called me in because it was like red alert mode. You know, you have to do something. And uh, they were like, listen, this is the last day. You have to apply to a school. And, you know, um, you know and, and they were giving me the hard sell. And, and I was such a sort of a punk about it. I, I turned to the girl next to me uh, and I said, hey, what school are you going to? And, and she said, Northeastern. And I said, I want to go to Northeastern more than anything else. And let me fill out the form. And... Uh, I was such a jerk about it, and I filled out the form, and I ended up getting scholarships and going to Northeastern. But you know, I was the perfect candidate. If if it had even been brought up, I don't just don't even know. Why I didn't think of it uh, to take to take a year off and do something else first to get my head screwed on straight. You know. But you sort of did that partway through college with the yeah. uh, when you found a publisher. Tell us about your your first foray into the exciting and lucrative world of book publishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I I finally figured it out. I so I went to Northeastern and Northeastern University is a fantastic school. It's just that it's uh and for some people this is great. It's spread out in a very urban um environment. Uh it just feels like part of the city. It's woven in. It's it's not uh you know, it's not like Oxford, for example. And my best friend had gone to Dartmouth. And I went to visit him, and I was like, "Well, this is what I, you know, this is what I pictured. Like, look at this picturesque. This looks like a TV show in here." <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, you know, and and uh, and then and also, you know, when I went to university, I, I, you know, I went up to the professor and I said, "Okay, here's how it's going to go," and they were like laughing at me, like, "That's not how this goes." And I was thinking, like, "Well, that's how it went at high school. What do you mean?" And and so I just. I wasn't into it, and then I got an offer to go to another school, UMass, where they actually they paid me a modest sum to go to their school, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good deal, so I'll do that. And I still didn't like it, and um, I got a job moving heavy boxes uh, up and down at a publishing house called Little Brown and Company, which was then mostly um, uh, located on Beacon Hill in Boston, Massachusetts, in one of those cool old mansions. And um, basically, I was lugging heavy boxes of books from the uh, attic to the uh, lobby so that I could get them out of there. And 
I had grown up, my, my friend Mark's dad was a dentist and he had one of the first um, Apple computers. And like I said, I, I was an artist. And so I, from an early age, was trying to work on computers not to write code but to create art and um, my my high school had them and I, I used them a lot for that so one day when the art department of this publishing company which was only about nine people or so went out to lunch altogether I snuck onto one of the art director's workstations they were just moving from spray glue and exacto knives and photostat machines to desktop publishing. So I really knew what I was doing there. And I jumped on one. I found uh, a cover that needed designing. Um, that is to say, I found a transmittal or, or whatever. It was. It's basically a piece of paper that says, here's the title, subtitle, here's kind of what we want it to look like or communicate, et cetera. And, so and it was I, a book. I, it was a book I should add for our listeners that was, a, I guess, a biography of the Allman Brothers. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> called Midnight Riders. I don't think it's a very good cover now, but I... I quickly um, designed the jacket, I mocked it up, I, I printed it out, I matted it up, I slipped it in with the others to go off to New York where sales and editorial would meet to decide um, on the covers. And then I went back to doing the boxes and when the art director came back a few days later, he wanted to know who designed this cover and I said, me, and he said, the box kid. And I said, yeah, and uh, basically that turned into an offer to be a book cover designer at uh, at this pretty prestigious publishing house. And I thought to myself, well, don't people go to don't people go to college and graduate so they can get a job like this? It seems like I kind of could skip the skip the next two years and and skip ahead. So uh, even though I had this great scholarship um i decided to go for it and i and i took the job and this guy steve snyder the art director became my mentor and taught me so much but the first day was funny because the very first day of of my uh of my job as a as a designer i i reported um for work i knocked on his office door and he didn't even speak he beckoned me in with his hand uh, i walked over to his desk Still without speaking, he reached behind him silently without looking. His hand found the right book. It was a Pantone color swatch guide. Put it down in front of him, slowly flipping through the colors until he got into the darker browns and the mocha colors. He, he went down, he ripped out a sort of a creamy mocha colored swatch, put it down on his desk with one finger, slid it slowly across without even looking at me, tapped it once and said, that's how I take my coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and like uh, everything just in my br one second in my brain, I thought, Oh my God, I dropped out of college on a scholarship for, I, oh, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I, I have to go now match this color to, to the, his coffee with cream at the local Dunkin Donuts. I, I can't believe. And he said, what do you think I am? So kind of a jerk. And then, you know, Turns out he was just making a joke, and he's a really, really nice guy. And um, that began, that started my career as a sort of a professional graphic designer. Now, I think one of the lessons of that story, what what comes out here, and I was, I was actually um, listeners that know that I have um, three kids, and and talk to my kids a lot about the books that I that I read and the guests that I interviewed, and talking to my elder daughter about this book, and I said, you know, the key idea here in this book is make your own opportunities. Make your own opportunities. And I think that's a great example of making your own opportunities, slipping that design in with the official designs and seeing what happened. But there's another really interesting point that you make here. Uh, and we're going to – listeners, we're going to get to Twitter here in a moment, but I think these early days are quite revealing. Um, you write that – uh, graphic design is an excellent preparation for any profession because it teaches you that for any one problem, there are infinite potential solutions. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, Steve taught me. I, I, know, I couldn't help but notice a lot of the other designers would design a cover that they thought was um, sort of masterfully designed, beautifully designed, um, and yet they would get turned down. Hmm. And... The reason it would get turned down is because um, the sales team, who are good at their jobs, um, didn't think they could sell that book with that cover. Or the editorial team, who uh, who is in direct contact with the author, for whatever reason, didn't think it conveyed uh, what the book was about. And 
And I would notice that these other designers would get really angry, like everyone else was wrong. And I just never saw it that way. I thought there's always another, there is always another design. All, all this, all, all we're talking about is the positioning of letters, colors, and images on, on, a, on a rectangle. There is literally an infinite uh, arrangements of these things. And you can make a successful, award-winning, beautiful design. You can satisfy the editor, and you can satisfy the sales team. Why not shoot for that as opposed to just grumbling about it? So it occurred to me that anytime something got turned down, it was just an opportunity to try again. And, um, and for me, trying again was always fun. I would do wacky things like, like um, take a piece of cardboard and, and cut out the dimensions of the cover and then just hold that cardboard up against the window or the wall or, or a magazine. And, and, and since it's matted and framed that way, I said, is that a good cover? Is this a good cover? I mean, there's so many wonderful ways to inspire yourself. And that, and that is where I got that sort of aphorism of creativity is a renewable resource. You know, it doesn't run out. You cannot run out. And that, does, of, co- that of course, is not limited to graphic design. I mean, the human brain, the human mind, you can always come at a problem in, a, in, another, in another way. You can always take a creative approach. And, and when you... Just remind yourself of that. You suddenly, it's a freeing thing because sometimes you feel like you've painted yourself into a corner or your back is to a wall. And when you remind yourself of that, then you realize that um, you know, the world is ahead of you and you have every opportunity you could possibly imagine. We are listening to Office Hours. Our guest is Biz Stone. He's the co-founder of Twitter and author of the new book, Things a Little Bird Told Me. Confessions of the Creative Mind. Now, uh, fast-forwarding just a little bit, somehow you connected with a fellow named Evan Williams. Mm-hmm. Who's he, and how'd you find him? Evan Williams is, first of all, a very good friend of mine, second of all, a genius and a great leader. I found Evan Williams uh, through the Internet. We, um, a- After I worked for Steve as a graphic designer, he filled my head with this idea, the, his old days of having his own studio and making all this money, and I thought, that's what I want to do. So I started a design studio and very quickly realized I wasn't going to make much money just doing book covers. I said, the money is in um, building websites. So I started building websites, and, and that, that was great. Then my friends graduated college, went into consulting, hated it, wanted to build a web company, came to me. We started an early social blogging network, which was a competitor to a company called Blogger, mm. uh, which is run by Evan Williams and some of his um, colleagues. So we uh, found each other by, by reading each other's blogs. Now, I read his blog, and I, I thought this was a... Uh, outstanding intellectual thinker of a guy who was building the uh, democratization of information on the internet, and I was, uh, and I was just really impressed by him. And it was the type of guy I would um, like to work with and learn from. And uh, I didn't know that he was doing the same thing. Uh, I had I had never would have considered that when Evan um, when Evan's company blogger was acquired by Google, I dropped him a note and I said, you know, I have to tell you this. I've always felt like I was the missing member of your team and <laughs> congratulations on getting um, acquired by Google. And, uh, you know, I don't know. There you have it. If you ever, if you ever want another guy to work for you, you know, I'm your man. And, and big, uh, it was a huge surprise to me. He emailed me back. How'd you like to work here? And, um, I moved out to California and I met him for the first time when he picked me up at the airport and um, that worked out great. We became fast friends. We really liked working with each other at Google so much so that when he quit, uh, I followed him to to his next. uh, Right, right. Well, you got to Google and after a rather tortuous interview process that you weren't sure was an interview and you worked (laughs) and you worked, you worked at Google for a while and then just give us a taste of what that was like, because where where are we now? Like two thousand and four or so? Yeah, I got I got there in two thousand three, uh, and then two thousand four they went public, and then two thousand five I quit, um, and it was it was amazing. I had a blog 
or I still I still do, but I don't blog as much. I had a blog that I called Bizstone Genius, um, it, and I pretended that I ran this fictitious company called Genius Labs, where, mm -hmm. where, where we worked on anything and everything from you know hybrid air transit to secret government projects. It was all just a bunch of fun, um, but it, I had this false sense of bravado and. When I got to Google, it was almost as if I was at Genius Labs. I mean, you, I couldn't believe the things they were working on in this place. You know, you would walk into a room and there would be a barefoot guy with a bunch of DVRs all taken apart and all these TVs running. And I would say, what's going on here? And he just would look at me and say, I'm recording everything being broadcast. And I would just back out slowly and say, <laughs> okay, keep up the good work. I mean, I went into a room where people were... We're operating these foot pedal machines with scanners and books underneath. And uh, what's going on in here? We're scanning every book ever published. Carry on. You know, it was just this amazing place where these amazing things were happening. And I felt like I got into Genius Labs. But there was a fundamental difference of, of philosophy for me. I loved working at Google because of the, the, um, the big thinking, the, the, the characters that worked there, the... the ingenuity, all that stuff. But I have a simple ordered list in my head that I go by, and that is number one, people, number two, technology. And when I was working at Google, I felt like their ordered list was reversed. Mm. It was number one, technology, number two, people. And, and that's why I think I didn't quite um, fit in there. Uh, or maybe I did and I just didn't feel like it. Um, but the other, the other thing is, you know, um, it, it was a tough decision to leave Google, but I I had a conversation with my wife, and I said, "Did I move out? Did we move out here together so I could work with Evan Williams, or did we move out here so I could work at Google? Which did we move out here for?" And I realized it was it was to work with Evan Williams. So that once I figured that out, um, it occurred to me that my next step was to. Uh, was to give notice at Google. So you follow him to a company that he started called Odeo. Yes. And I think that this is in some ways the most interesting part of the story because you guys actually have something pretty interesting, pretty good, um, uh, something that people might be interested in. You you found, you know, iTunes ended up at, uh, kind of competing with you, but you found a way to, as they say now in the, in the, in the lingo, to pivot around that. And mm -hmm. yet... There was a problem with this really cool idea that a lot of people might be interested in. What was that problem that you faced that Evan faced? The, the problem that we faced was we lacked emotional investment in our work. And we didn't understand what that was until we had had a few whiskeys one night. We, this was, Odeo certainly was a fantastic idea. It's why it was so easy to raise money for it. It was why we just sort of slipped right into it. It sounded, it's, it sounded so sexy. Um, and yet we weren't using our own product. And right. that, that is a problem. That's let, a me let me, let me, let me, there's a great story in there where you say you guys realized that you could become the kings of podcasting. Yeah, I, that, that's what I was talking yeah. about. We, we went out for whiskey and, and veggie sushi. And uh, I, I finally just said to Evan, I said, Evan, you know, he had presented this pivot, as you say, and, and, I, and I said, you know, I think what you've laid out here is brilliant. And I think if we do it, we'll be very successful. In fact, we could be the kings of podcasting. How do you like that? And he laughed. And, I, and then I said, but you know what? I have a question for you. Would you like to be the king of podcasting? <laughs> And he just put his head in his hands and he moaned and he said, no. <laughs> and that was when we realized that even if we were as successful as we could possibly be in that venture, we, we didn't want that. We didn't even want it. So why were we doing it? It's a great, great lesson. Let me, let me quote you back here. You say, if you don't love what you're building, if you're not an avid user yourself, then you will most likely fail even if you're doing everything else right. I think this is such an important business lesson because if you look at um, both established companies and entrepreneurial companies, there are plenty of CEOs out there who don't use the product they're trying to get other people to buy, who actually don't really care about it very much and who wouldn't stoop to put it in their own home or put it in their own car. And I just think that is just such a, uh, a colossal warning sign for people, both for investors and for themselves and for employees. 
You guys are among the few who heeded that warning sign. Um, but in the course of working on this, you and here's where it gets. Here's where we get to the the headline here in a way. You guys did a hackathon. Mm-hmm. And yeah. something amazing happened in that hackathon. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, uh, it was Ev's idea. He said, "You know what? We just got to shake things up." Um, it was right after the dinner where we we just sort of realized uh, that we weren't emotionally invested. And in. he said, "We got to shake things up. Everybody, take two weeks and do a hackathon." And, and a hackathon. Another word for a hackathon is just uh, you know uh, play, you know work, but play. Build something. Um, that you feel emotionally invested in. Have fun. Like, be biz. Be a kid again and start attaching screws and gears together and see what happens. And um, that turned out to be a genius idea because uh, we had hired this guy named Jack Dorsey to work uh, for us at Odeo, and he and I had become very fast friends. We were always finding reasons to work together on little mini projects within the company. So we, uh, it was almost like, you know, in gym class when you're a kid and they say like, okay, pick a partner. It was obvious that we were going to join up. We joined up. We, each of us had these, these ideas that weren't too dissimilar from one another. And, um, and we landed on this idea, this concept of, of uh, broadcasting your current status to anyone who would like to hear it or, or read it. And, um, and, and he so, got that that derived from his experience on uh, instant messaging, where yeah, people would say, was, I'm away, I'm eating a sandwich, I can't talk, and all that. Yeah, that's the way that he explained it to me, because I was thrown, like, you know, I've always wanted to do, um, like, just picture blogging, like, just just pictures, no words, or I've always wanted to do blogs, but crappy. Like, you know, if you, it's not, you just don't feel like writing anything good, you just something short and stupid. And he was like, oh, that's very interesting, but I have a better idea, and let me show you what I mean. And he, sh- that, you know, I don't know who all uses AOL Instant Messenger anymore, what it looks like, but there was a little status field, and, it, and you could say, in addition to chatting with your friends, you could say what your current mood was or, or, or something like this. And, and, or you could say you're out sick, and that's not why you're online. And, and he, he pointed out to me that some people were saying, uh, funny things in there or mm. saying what music they were listening to or whatever it was. And, and he said, just look at this. You know, I can look down this list of friends and without even communicating with them, I can get a sense of what they're all This Look, this guy's out sick. This guy's feeling blue. This guy's happy. This guy's listening to the White Stripes. This, look, isn't that interesting that I kind of know what they're, what they're moving? And I didn't even talk to him. And I said, that is interesting. And so we thought we also, you know, SMS was coming up, um, and, and it was big in Europe, but it was coming up in, in uh, the U.S. And we thought, whoa, one of my favorite things to do is to is to take something and use it for something else. And um, you know, I don't know if you know the history of SMS, but SMS is essentially just um, was essentially just used to light your message light, like right. to tell you you have a message. It turns out. You can put a little information in there equal to about 160 characters. And so we thought, oh, why don't we build something on top of this of this simple technology? And so we built a prototype of S, of Twitter in two weeks. It wasn't really a working type, prototype. It was kind of a fake it till you make it kind of thing to show off what it might look like. And um, not many people thought it was very good, but Evan saw something in it. And so he let us continue working together, and, and off we went. But you actually, there's a little bit of uh, trivia here. You actually, even though that allowed, I guess, 160, as you said, uh, you decided to go with 140. Why? Yeah, well, it didn't seem fair because what happened was we, it was 100, it was originally 160 characters minus the length of your name ah, uh-huh. and, and, uh, and a colon and a space. Uh, and my name was Biz. That's easy. Uh, and someone else's name might be like uh, Joaquin, mm-hmm. and that meant I had more characters than Joaquin, that, and that didn't seem fair. So I pointed it out to Jack that it wasn't fair, and I also think part of him, not that it wasn't fair, just knowing Jack's aesthetic was that it wasn't like even, you know. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so he, um, we sent out a note the next day that says we're just going to standardize on 140, and uh, everyone gets the same amount of characters. And so that's where we got that's where we got that number. The funny thing is, we actually waste five characters, and, and because we uh, take the 160, we give people 140 characters to write, but we only let people 
have usernames of up to 15 characters, which ah. leaves five characters um, unaccounted for. And where do they go? Is it, they, is it like they go to the same place that you're missing socos in the laundry? Exactly. Is there some kind place. of black, some universal black hole with like, consisting only of those five characters and you're missing socks? You just broke it here. Oh, you, you, man, you, oh, man. ruined my secret. That was a 10-year plan. Yeah. Uh, so, so Twitter, it sounds odd. You guys saw something. Um, uh, I, I, one of the key, again, I'm, there's still lessons from the, um, from the book is that constraint, the importance of constraints, that constraints in, uh, inspire creativity. And so Twitter is all about constraints, and it takes off. It ends up having an effect, having playing a role in the uh, Mumbai bombings of a few years, of, a few years ago of Arab Spring, and so forth. When this is going on, I mean, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Or are you thinking, are these people crazy? Or what have we unleashed? I mean, what does it feel like to sort of come up with this crazy thing in a hackathon and suddenly find people around the world? using it in very significant circumstances of bombings and uh, pro-democracy riots? Well, we saw, we saw potential of it very early on. Um, we certainly didn't envision that sort of thing. Um, but I guess my answer to that question would be that I d we didn't feel like it was us. It, d mm. it didn't feel like... Uh, a lot of the news reports and everything were were were, were linking our, the brand of our service, the brand name of our service, and with all of these unbelievable things that were happening around the world. And um, you know, it, it, again, back to that ordered list. It was, it was the people first. It mm -hmm. was the brave people that decided to, you know, uh, risk their lives to change their circumstances. And then it was number two, the technology that they chose to do that with, which could have been anything. Um, my theory there is that, uh, you know, people are basically good. They're basically brave. They're basically, um, they want to do good things. And if you can give them tools that will allow them to do these things, they'll prove it to you every single day. So if we can create it, so what we essentially did was we created a tool simple enough uh, that it could be used on a feature phone that only supports SMS or a browser with a broadband connection in New York City, uh, and and yet we uh, the playing field was the same. It was level. It was 140 characters all the way around, and so uh, you know, again, it was more a sense of oh my gosh, look what people can do when they can coordinate, um, mm -hmm. and you know that's that's my aspirational vision of the future is is tech you know the triumph of humanity with a little help from technology if yeah. te if if we can build the kind of technology that allows people to coordinate to help one another to work together then we may be able to achieve things in 100 years that it has taken us um i mean we may uh, the reverse we may be able to achieve in one year what it has traditionally taken us 100 years to achieve just by virtue of this um, fast coordin coordination, this ability to, to help each other in real time. Yeah, and one of the, one of the lessons, again, trying to distill some lessons for our listeners for, from your story, from, this, from the story of Twitter, is I, I think that one of the really fascinating things about Twitter is are the emergent qualities of it. And, and you, um, uh, how a lot of the things like uh, at replies and retweets weren't stuff that you came up with and said, Dear users, please use this. But there were things that the users started doing organically. And there's this great quote that from Larry Wall, who created the programming language Perl, that you said. Uh, I'm going to quote what, what Wall says. He says, when, when they built the University of California at Irvine, they just put the buildings in. They did not put any sidewalks. They just planted grass. The next year, they came back and they came back and put sidewalks where the trails were in the glass. And he says, Perl is that kind of language. And I guess you're saying Twitter is, is that Twitter is that as well, that you have to be open to the emergent qualities of what you've created. And I think by putting people first and not technology first, is it true that you open yourself to those emergent properties, those emergent qualities? Yeah, it is true. And I think you have to, you have to think about when you're, when you're building large-scale collaborative networks, you have to think of them as self-organizing systems. Mm -hmm. And we see these things in nature all the time. I mean, we, we, if, if you look at an ant colony, it's amazing 
the mathematics and geometry are so sophisticated. They put their larder exactly mathematically as far away from their graveyard as it possibly can be. But there's no one genius ant who figured right, that out with a right. little, little, little tiny ant ruler. It was, <laughs> it, it's just this, there's an emergence that takes place. And the easiest way to describe it is that the, the whole uh, becomes something far greater than the sum of its parts. And when you leave the door open for the unknown and leave the door open for this sort of thing to happen and you just pay attention and look for patterns from a high altitude and interpret um, as a developer of these sorts of systems what is trying to be done. I mean, it's not... one. I think there's a misconception that, like, you know, we just were you know had our sitting on our hands while people uh, invented everything it was really a cooperation between what we were seeing mm-hmm. people trying to do and and then trying to figure out how can we build that into the system so that they can do what they want to do and perhaps maybe even do it in a more efficient way that also helps make the system stronger so but for sure there is um there is an emergence that takes place in these self-organizing systems that you need to have a reverence for when you're building them. Because if you take a hierarchical approach, uh, you know, it, you, I guess you could get lucky, but generally I don't think that works. Yeah, I mean, we, it, wor- it works if you're building a, you know, the Hoover Dam. You know, or whatever, but not when you're building this sort of almost inspired by nature collaborative network. Interesting. Interesting. So we've got a few minutes left. I want to draw out some more principles here. But um, speaking of uh, little tiny ant rulers, uh, you had an interesting <laughs> visit with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and um, uh, in your early days when he tried to buy the company, I love that story. I wonder if you could t- retell <laughs> it for us quickly. Sure. So um, you and Ev, Ev picks you up and you drive to Palo Alto. You're not sure what's going on. You've got this white shirt on that you don't ordinarily wear. It's kind of itchy. Yeah. And so <laughs> tell us what happens after that. I'm just very uncomfortable in this dress shirt that my wife told me I looked good in. And I just was so sorry I wore this thing because I never wear a shirt like that. So I'm thinking of this shirt the whole time. I don't even know where we're going. I finally think to ask Ev, by the way, where are you taking me? Palo Alto, Why? We're, mi- we're meeting Mark Zuckerberg. Why? I want to talk about partnership. What does that mean? It means acquiring the company. Okay, so we go in. We get our name badges on. Uh, we go to see Mark. Mark says, you didn't need to put name badges on. And we said, yes, we did. The lady said we did. And, and that was weird. And then he said, you want to see the, you want to look around? And he showed us around like four buildings. And we followed around Palo Alto for a while. We finally end up in an office that's so small, it only hosts a, a chair and a love seat. And Mark walks right in and takes the chair, leaving the love seat for <laughs> Evan and I to squeeze into. And I go in first and sit on the love seat. And Ev Ev goes in second, and he and he asks Mark, "Do you want me to leave this door open, or do you want me to, uh, or not?" And Mark says, "Yes." And it wasn't it didn't it wasn't clear. Yes, what? Yes, mm-hmm, open. Mm-hmm. Yes, bro. So Ev said, "Well, I'll just close it this much," and he like. Left it was just very left it slightly ajar, so that was weird. I was trying to make all these jokes. Mark was just looking at me like, "Who is this guy?" Uh, Evan snuggles up next to me on the couch. Um, on the way down there in the car, I had said to Evan, "We're are we we're talking about selling the company?" And he he said, "I guess so." And I said, "But do we want to sell the company?" And he was like, "Not really." And I was like, "Well, if we're not if we don't if we're going down there and we don't want to sell the company, what are we gonna do?" And he was like, I don't know. And, you know, we'd already agreed to go down there. So I said, I have an idea. Why don't we just, if it comes to it, why don't we just say a number that is so outrageously ridiculous that he has to say no? And, and I was like, like what? And I, and I, my brain could only come up, the biggest number I can think of was $500 million. That's a big and number. I said $500 million and we laughed so hard because that is the most outrageously big number. I think we I think we had the uh, the valuation of our company had just been set at like twenty or something, and uh, and even that was like a stretch as far as we were concerned. Um, 
So I said, 500 million. We had a laugh, a gut-busting laugh. When we get there, we're in that. We're in the love seat. We're chit-chatting. I'm trying to say stuff. I gave up on jokes, and I finally started to like say, Mark, I think what you're doing is fantastic. I think all, generally what we're all doing here is the same kind of work, trying to advance humanity, help people work together, and yada, yada, yada. And then Mark just said, I don't like to talk about numbers, but if you would like to tell me a number, I will tell you yes or no. And Evan looked at me, and then he looked at Mark, and he said, 500 million? And Mark took a breath and then said, that's a big number. And I said, you said you'd say yes or no. <laughs> and, uh, and then that just turned into, let's go to lunch. And, and you, know, it, you know, I have to give kudos to um, Mark because they came up with the money. I mean, they, I, we thought they would for sure say no, but they came up with a mix of cash and stock. And uh, that put us in a weird position because now we had that meeting and we got an offer. So, so Evan drafted up a very professional, nice note that said, listen, we're not ready to sell our company. We feel like we're just getting started. And uh, there's a lot, a lot to do here. And uh, thank you for your time. We very much appreciate your um, your offer, but uh, it's not, we're not ready, and um, and that was that. But it was it was quite a interesting, awkward, fun, funny story. It's a it's a fun it's a it's a fun it's a fun it's a fun story in the in the book. And one of the one of the truths that I think it it, it reveals is one of the truths about just adult life, which is that essentially everybody's winging it all the time. Um, yeah, and I mean, the other thing I think it reveals is if you're not ready to sell your company, you really shouldn't take a meeting about selling your company. With Mark Zuckerberg, yes. Um, yeah. Now, yeah, you also, uh, we're running a little short on time here, but I, I want to get, you don't write about this in the book, but you also apparently had a, had an offer from, from Al Gore, who I should say in the interest of full disclosure to the listeners, uh, is a former boss of mine. Um, how did that differ from your Zuckerberg meeting? Oh, well, that, I mean, in terms of uh, charm, I mean, that guy, you know, he had us rolling. I mean, he was, he could, he was telling stories. Uh, he was plying us with alcohol. <laughs> he, was, he uh, it was, I mean, also he was Al Gore, you know, it's like, wow, we're having dinner with Al Gore. Um, he, you know, he was just trying to paint a picture of a world, uh, you know, he saw Twitter as sort of the news generating platform of the future uh, powered by people and that was something that he was trying to achieve with uh, current uh -huh. and he he thought the combination of those two would make a, a fantastic combination um, and Evan warned him before we had the dinner he said my friend Biz here can get very excited about things don't take that as a yes and in fact um, when he uh, you know he he when he finally did say, when he finally did, you know, make a compelling argument as to why Twitter and television should team up, I finally said, you know what? I think you're right, but we should team up with all the channels, not just current. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, well, well, hold, settle down now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was, uh, it ended up being the opposite of what Evan said. But, uh, but he had some, I mean, just the way he told stories, it was just unbelievable. I mean, he had his business partner there, Joel Hyatt, and he said something like, you know, when we got this, when we bought Current, you know, we had to, I tell you what, we had to hold some metaphorical guns to some metaphorical heads. And Joel said, um, Al, the heads were real. Uh. <laughs> yeah, they just they, they just made a. He was like a straight man. Yeah, uh, it was hilarious. There you go. There you go. Now Twitter, uh, as we talk, has a market cap of uh, about twenty nine billion. That's with a B billion dollars. Uh, uh, a couple final things here. Uh, your new venture post Twitter is Jelly. What is it? Tell us. And, and why should we use it? And how's it going to change the world? Well, I'll start backwards. I think Jelly is the true promise of a connected society, and that's how it's going to change the world. There's things that can only be invented at certain points, and we're at the most, society is at the most connected it's ever been. Uh, and the new degree of separation is not six, it's four. Uh, we're all linked now by social networks and mobile phones, which means we're only a few degrees of separation from what we want to know and someone who knows what we want to know. And in so many cases, a person is better than a computer at helping you. Mm -hmm. And so what Jelly is from a product standpoint is it's 
a new way to search with pictures and people from your social networks. It's not another social network. It's taking your existing social networks, blending them all into one, and using that as one giant web uh, through which we route queries to people who will know the answer to your question. So a 14-year-old girl who wants to know how to uh, go about painting an acrylic uh, painting in art class sends their question to Jelly. That goes to me. I forward it to my friend in the uh, movie business who's a director. He forwards it to his uh, art director, and his art director tells her exactly what to do. And in what world can a 14-year-old girl in Florida get advice from a Hollywood uh, art director for exactly how to paint her painting? And this is the kind of thing that we're seeing. And it's just, um, it. Again, I, I get to this idea of, I've been asking myself for the past several years now, why are we the most uh, connected society uh, history has ever seen? And the only good answer I can come up with is so we can help each other. So mm. really, Jelly is about, let's help each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's sort of, uh, in some ways, it's, you're remaking a search engine from scratch, powered by individuals who... Are inherently have a desire to help each other. Yeah, and our mobile phones are basically the hyperlinks that yeah. are the equivalent of hyperlinking documents on the web. I mean, it works. It works sort of similarly, but not the same as information retrieval because this information has not been published yet. You're retrieving it from a living person. Four degrees of separation is the new six degrees of separation. Let's circle back to end to that, uh, not explicitly about that commencement at Babson that you gave a while back that was the impetus for this book. But um, let's say you're sitting down with um, a, well, I'll use my daughter as an example. You're sitting, I have a 17-year-old daughter. You're sitting down with my 17-year-old daughter. She's looking out at the world that's before her. And she, of course, doesn't want to come to her dad for advice. Why would any sane teenager do that? But instead, she comes to you, Biz Stone, co-founder of Twitter for advice about how to lead her life. What are, I'll give you three, what are three pieces of advice that you would give her or other 17-year-olds about to embark on the world? Well, I'd start with failure. I'd say in order to succeed spectacularly, you really need to be willing to fail spectacularly. That's a good one. Uh, I would tell her that um, she, you know, going back to this idea of creativity, she is a endless uh, resource of creativity. She'll never run out, so she doesn't have to worry about that. Um, and then I would tell her that uh, there is compound impact in altruism, mm. and helping other people really is helping yourself. It's, it's not, you shouldn't think of it a, of give, as giving something away, whether it's time or money. You should thinking, think of it as gaining something and you'll, and you'll win. Fantastic. So three lessons from Biz Stone here, Office Hours listeners. One, the importance of failure. To succeed spectacularly, you have to fail spectacularly. Two, creativity is an endless resource. And three, I like the phrase a lot, that there is a compound in, uh, impact in altruism. We have been talking to Biz Stone. You know him as a co-founder of Twitter, as a co-founder of this very cool new um, tool called Jelly that I hope you'll check out. And But he's also a writer. He's written a book <laughs> called Things a Little Bird Told Me, Confessions of the Creative Mind. It's a really, it's just a great story about a cool guy. And I think you can learn <laughs> a lot. Uh, and I hope you pick it up. Biz Stone, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for being interested. That's uh, it for Office Hours. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. If you've missed a previous episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But you can listen to other uh, interviews with other great uh, doers and thinkers on iTunes or on danpink.com. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. Thanks for listening.